Good afternoon and welcome to the 190th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a continuation of our discussion of choreography in the pandemic with David Brick and Eko Otake. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 17th, 2020, there are 1,657,132 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 17,110,219 cases in the United States, and there are now a total of 309,334 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 306,243 reported yesterday. Japan reports 2,623 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. We've talked a lot about memorials on COVID calls. I'd like to continue that discussion now. The headline is, where are all the memorials to Americans killed by COVID-19? This is written by Kate McQuaid and appeared in the Boston Globe on December 3rd. At the end of August, the city of Detroit staged Detroit Memorial Day. Hundreds of blown up photos of Detroiters who had died of COVID lined the streets of Belle Isle. Church bells rang, 14 funeral processions led by hearses made the circuit. Seeing images on Twitter, I gasped in relief. Somebody was acknowledging the mass casualties. Someone was making a space to mourn. Three months and roughly 100,000 deaths later, there still aren't many COVID memorial projects. Neither Boston nor Cambridge has announced plans for one. Of course, truly public art underwritten by governments can move at a glacial pace, and maybe we need to get on the other side of the pandemic. But contending with COVID's impact isn't precisely the same as mourning the lost. One of the cruelties of COVID is it forbids the memorialization of its victims in real time, said James E. Young, founding director of the Institute for Holocaust, Genocide, and Memory Studies at University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a self-described memorialist. To commemorate the victims is to turn others into victims, he said. But it's not just the contagion. It's a White House in active denial and a president who has politicized an epic disaster. Some artists can't help but act. In May, as New York was pulling out of its early siege with the disease, artist Jorge Rodriguez Herrada had a conversation with philanthropist Henry R. Munoz III, co-founder of the healthcare network Somos Community Care, I said, there's no major altars, nothing happening to make a place to heal, no images on any grand scale, Rodriguez Herrada said over the phone from Barcelona, where he lives part-time. He said, let's change that. 
The artist, underwritten in part by Somos Community Care, created Somos La Luz, Spanish for We Are Light, a 27,500 square foot mural in a Queens parking lot depicting a doctor in a face mask. Only his eyes are visible. They are those of Dr. Idelfonso Decu, a pediatrician who died of COVID. His wife told me he was going to retire. He was a successful man. He didn't have to go back to the front lines, Rodriguez Herrada said. It cost him his life. Depicting a Latino was important to the Cuban-American artist because of the disproportionate number of black and brown people who've died. It will affect you more if you can't stay home, he said of the disease. The immigrant population has borne the brunt of that terrible hardship. We should be giving thanks to them instead of calling ICE. Somos La Luz was temporary. The parking lot has been painted over. The artist was ready to do more, but he didn't find funding. It was just crickets, he said. Nobody was willing to take the next step. The mural lives on online. Rodriguez Herrada said he intends to update his YouTube video as the death toll rises. Other artists have created temporary works they paid for out of pocket and powered with volunteers. In America, how could this happen? Susan Brennan Furstenberg's installation of small white flags enumerating the dead closed on November 30th after six weeks on and spilling beyond the Armory Parade Ground in Washington, D.C. I created it out of outrage, said Furstenberg over the phone from Bethesda, Maryland. Remember early March when the lieutenant governor of Texas said that elderly people should take one for the team? I was a hospice volunteer for 25 years. Everybody's life has meaning. In August, she saw a headline calling the death toll a statistic and decided that she could not let that stand. I do art to teach people just what these big numbers are, she said. After the initial installation, she and a team of volunteers added flags each day to keep up with the rising tide of the dead. Visitors wrote names and dates of the lost on the flags. People bring their emotions, the names of their loved ones, for public recognition because the deaths are happening in a vacuum, Furstenberg said. But it isn't simply grief these artists are grappling with. It's fury at the inaction of the Trump administration. Young, the memorialist, said there's more than COVID's cruelty to grapple with ahead. Eventually, there will be memorials, he said, but this was a pandemic that became politicized immediately in a horrible way, and that's what we'll remember along with the victims. He sees hope in President-elect Joe Biden. He's a fantastic designated mourner for all of us, Young said. He gets it completely. In November, Young reached out to Los Angeles, Los Angeles artist Carla Funderburk, hoping to help her find sites to show her installation Honoring Matter, a memorial for victims of COVID-19. She too created it out of a compulsion to act. I couldn't not do something watching the news and hearing the numbers tick over, she said. Back in May, she started folding origami cranes to honor the dead. She quickly realized it would take decades to fold so many cranes by herself and enlisted help online. People dropped off cranes in a box she put outside Matter Studio Gallery, where she's founder and director. They mailed them from as far away as Japan and Dubai. First, there were 10, then 300 or 600 at a time, Funderburg said. She created an installation in the gallery, suspending strings of cranes that drifted in the breeze. I had just shy of 8,000 when I broke it down, she said, of the installation. It felt like the full volume of spirits we were losing casting shadow on top of shadow. Now she has 30,000 cranes, and she's looking for another home for the project. 
museums, galleries, storefronts, universities, she said, they're all encouraging, but nobody's willing to hand me a key. Political division, said Rodriguez Herrada, prompts institutional caution. Everybody's in fear right now. Nobody wants to get their head chopped off, he said. Furstenberg sees her installation of white flags as a possibility for an awakening. I want this to be an opportunity for Americans to come out of their foxholes, to look and be shocked together into a different relationship with the pandemic, she said. It has to be a pivot point in how we consider ourselves as Americans. Think of the processions driving by images of the fallen in Detroit and bells tolling to mark the 1,500 dead there. Memorials help us integrate loss into our lives. Private or public, they are necessary for healing. COVID's insidious threat is, in a way, a metaphor for the president's denialism. It hems us in like a toxic fog and quashes action. But grief is here, and grieving is called for, or today's trauma will, on some level, never end. I'd like to welcome my guests for today. Really been looking forward to this conversation and let me introduce them to you. Born and raised in Japan and a resident of New York since 1976, Eiko Otake is a movement-based interdisciplinary artist. She worked for more than 40 years as Eiko and Koma, but since 2014 has been performing her own solo project, A Body in Places, which began with a 12-hour performance at the Philadelphia Amtrak station. Since then, Echo has performed variations of the project at nearly 80 sites. Let me tell you a little bit more about her work. Between 2014 and 2019, she and photographer historian William Johnston traveled five times to post-nuclear meltdown Fukushima and collaborated on creating A Body in Fukushima, an extensive and expanding project that documents places of nuclear contamination with Echo's body. Eko has presented both photo exhibitions and film screenings of a body in Fukushima internationally at museums, art centers, and conferences on environmental disasters. Also in 2017, she launched a multi-year duet project, an open-ended series of cross-disciplinary, cross-cultural, and cross-generational experiments with a diverse range of artists, both living and dead. David Brick is one of her collaborators of the duet project. In January of this year, Eko traveled to China for a month to work with choreographer Wen Hui, during which the COVID-19 epidemic was identified. And since March, Eko has been creating works in her virtual studio, which archives her art making and public conversations in the time of the pandemic. Eko has been honored with the MacArthur Fellowship, the Samuel H. Scripps American Dance Festival Award, and the first Doris Duke Artist Award. For her solo work, she's received a Bessie's Special Citation, an Art Matters Fellowship, the Anonymous Was a Woman Award, and the Sam Miller Award for, Permanent, for Performing Arts. Echo teaches interdisciplinary college courses about the atomic bombings and other environmental issues at Wesleyan University, NYU, Colorado College, and Tokyo University. And during the 2017-18 year, Echo was a think tank fellow in Wesleyan's College of the Environment. Let me introduce my second guest, and he's a return guest to COVID Calls. We welcome back David Brick. David co-founded Philadelphia's Headlong Dance Theater with Amy Smith and Andrew Simonette in 1993. Over the next two decades, these three co-founders created over 40 dances as Headlong, performing nationally and internationally. In 2008, David co-founded the Headlong Performance Institute, a training program for creating experimental performance. David collaborates broadly in creating performance, participatory events, and community. His experience of growing up 
as a hearing member of a deaf family continually influences David's understanding of human bodies as active manifestations of culture. His recent work includes a residency at Dance Place in Washington, D.C. to work on Island of Signs, a performance that explored growing up in a family with two languages, one that was shared and one that was not. He shared this residence with Carolyn Brick, his 78-year-old deaf mother who attended nearby Gallaudet University and was featured in a 1959 documentary about her experience there. David and Echo, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. It's so nice to be here. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and, and how the pandemic is there today. Echo, can I start with you, please? Yes, I'm in middle of Manhattan, west side, uh, two blocks away from Times Square. And uh, my south end, which is my back uh, windows, now it's dark now, but it's facing south and, and sees a new trade center. And uh, beyond that, uh, such everybody. And you were um, back in New York as early as, when, when were you back in New York, Echo? So um, I was away uh, to Japan to escape what we now consider the worst of April, May uh, of the pandemic. Uh, but I stayed there until the end of August. And then I came back to both perform and teach in the US. So I've been here since. I see. But well, I was here uh, February, March. Okay. Well, so then you have those memories that many New Yorkers talk about of hearing the sirens and... Uh... But as I said, I think I had escaped the mm -hmm. worst of it because I live in a 2,000 people complex of two towers, 4,000 people living. And when the pandemic was first starting, it was very fearful also because I was, I, I'll, I'll show you this later, but I was in China starting in January and February with, with a cruise ship pandemic thing in Japan. So I think the fear factor of it was pretty uh, uh, large in myself and also the memories of having seen 9-11, two towers falling from this very apartment having survived the Asia epidemic, which was a very visible pandemic, actually. So I Maybe. think those memories made us made me feel I was not sure if I could be mentally stable if I had stayed. Hmm. I think we'll probably return to that, that discussion later when we talk yeah. about the reference points that people have to make sense of disaster many people do have something in their in their own lives and the history and many new yorkers of course have 9-11 as that reference point when they yes. heard sirens like that or when there were places in the city you couldn't go yes. um well david let me uh let me welcome you back and just uh before you tell us where you are i i want to remind people we had you on july 28th with ishmael houston jones in what was an extraordinary COVID calls and i hope people will check that out and on that day david um there were 148,298 deaths in the United States. We've more than doubled that now since uh, since that time. So it's it's almost in COVID time. It's it's been 10 years almost. It feels like since I've seen you. How are you? Where are you? And how's it going there? It's so nice to be back, and it's good to remember. It, it, a time is for me as a, and a lot of people I talk to is so strange during these these months and it does seem like 10 years ago 
um, that uh, Ishmael and I were were on the show. Um, we just had a huge snowstorm yesterday. I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm on the second floor of my row home uh, in South Philadelphia in Philadelphia. I, I'm in the same room that I've been in since virtually the beginning of the pandemic. I, I've, I probably spend 10 hours a day in this room <laughs> and it, it weighs on me. It, it, it weighs on me that um, I've come to think, I, this is a choreographic thought, that the like traveling across geographic space is like really does something to thinking and perception, right? So now I, you know, I have a practice of making sure, um, you know, I, I do some kind of walking across, um, you know, my, my, my neighborhood um, at least once a day. Um, but that's been an interesting thing about space, about being kind of like in a place, feeling stuck in a, a place that's not changing large scales of space. Um, I would say since the last time I was here, I was just remembering how Ishmael and I talked about this question, like what's happening in your city. And we talked a lot about who's taking the pandemic seriously and masking seriously. And I will say that um, now everyone I see is always wearing a mask, you know, and, and before it was a little mixed um, in July. And now uh, when I go out, everyone I pass on the, on the sidewalk um, is, uh, is wearing masks. So that's, that's, that's a change. I feel like it's an anxious moment because the, uh, the snowstorm has, has, you know, along with the kind of increase in numbers, the skyrocketing numbers, has meant that I think um, we all are like worried about what our, you know, what the, not we all, but a lot of people I talk to are just concerned about like the next few months. I, I have a nine-year-old and um, the sense of claustrophobia and the sense of, um, yeah, yeah, that there's just, you know, there's still a ways to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about the need to to travel, to walk. And, and I think about this for artists. I think about this also for anybody who's writing, uh, who, you know, I think about historians. When I, get to, when I get together with historians in Zoom land, we lament the fact that we can't go into an archive. There are these, these, places we're used to going to taking in input and and even the walk to and from a library or to and from an archive is an experience that I will never ever discount again as an important part of just a normal uh, thinking process for me. And I say that, of course, with enormous respect for people who haven't had the ability to be at home in this time, the essential workers who are out there and um, probably would trade uh, my quandary for theirs, but nevertheless, it's real. Um, and, you know, I feel that's probably also one of the things we may talk about today is how this pandemic has shaped your practice, because this is not a one or two month interruption of your practice. This is a new way of practice. Um, so why don't we, um, why don't we start, you know, talking a little bit about the work that you've been doing and I'm going to make a, just so people watching, I'm going to be, um, moving back and forth between a couple of browsers here. So I'm gonna leave you visually and I'm gonna rejoin you 
in audio. And you guys go ahead and, and, and start talking and don't mind me and I'll rejoin you in one second. Thank you. So, um, as I said, uh, 2020 was a stressful year for everyone. And I think we will all remember this worldwide, whatever the age we are. Um, but my 2020 started arriving to Beijing for a one month stay to work with my friend, uh, whom I know for a long time, Wen Fei, a prominent contemporary uh, choreographer and intermediate uh, interdisciplinary artist. So we, together we have a fellowship for me to be in China for one month and she was to come here for one month in August. So the latter did not happen. So instead, and there's not a very uh, fast, uh, too soon prospect that she can come back. So instead, we had been meeting every week uh, more than once often to edit uh, the videos that we have shot during the time. So I wanted to show you a very short video of on January 20th. This is already close to three weeks into my stay in China. And I did not know about uh, COVID, coronavirus uh, epidemic. Just we heard something was happening, but we didn't know how serious it was. And it was supposed to be really minor. So I was teaching a workshop in Nanjing. We traveled from Beijing to Nanjing, and I was teaching a workshop. So this is a little footage of what I did not know. And if I knew, now I know at that point how already the coronavirus was out there. I could not possibly do the workshop in the way I did. So it, it's a little bit emotional for me to share this with you. Scott, could you, could you please pray? Okay, let me, let's uh, get this here. All right. Make your body available to your grandma. This I might remember. This, if you are busy, you don't remember. Not shape. Yes. Yes. Three. A little bit longer. Longer. More. Three will go. You wait. You rest. You feel. And you continue to do until maybe some Walk together with your invisible grandma. So that was a little short clip, and uh, and of David and myself both teach, and we take a great pleasure of creating a time that participant can share both body and mind, and intimacy is an extremely important uh, content 
and a tool for us to begin to feel what body does in our mind and what how we can relate to others. So of course I have not taught this way since and obviously I've been teaching in Zoom. Um, but in the last clip I'm talking about you are with grandma. You remember, your body remembers how your grandma and you are close. Now she's dead, do you remember? This I'm saying without any notion of this epidemic pandemic soon to become pandemic was happening. So this is something I've been working on, like how to consider the possible and the inevitable death, either to the family or to yourself, and in a way of thinking about movement at work or a movement-based uh, way of thinking. Um, so uh, I would like to continue. This Can I, Eiko, do you mind if I just uh, yes, comment? You know, when um, Scott invited uh, Eiko and I to do this show, Eiko and I, who had been in very close contact up until the pandemic started, and then we hadn't really been uh had much contact over the course of the pandemic and so um when we we thought part of part of the conversation we could have today was a kind of sharing with each other like what's been going on for the past 10 months um for for each of us and i, I just want to say like seeing that clip is it's overwhelming and shocking because of the human beings touching each other um and the sensuality and people in a room together and it's like just not part of my life and you know and our lives anymore and i to it does feel like another era even though it's you know totally normal for us so i i it's very moving to see that um and remember david you and i used to do those dances together you know we would do like talking and dancing and moving and talking again moving while we are talking, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I was doing that in China until that night. This particular workshop is memorable to me because it was that night I found out this epidemic is, is a significant one. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and therefore, from that next day on, that would not have been possible. Mm -hmm. and then the rest of the stay was very much um, finding out more and more of that information. But before we go there, you know, it was for choreographers and movement-based artists, you know, our ability to be able to feel intimacy between each other and how we can communicate sometimes even without talking is so important to us. Right. Luckily, we remember that. So even though we cannot do it now, we remember how we do it and we can return to it, right? And if this goes on too long, you know, for younger people, it's much harder because we had decades of practicing that ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we're deprived of it now, we know what we are missing at least, right? Mm -hmm. I want to remind, I'm always, you know, even about teaching Zoom, and we can do a lot about Zoom, and I become better at it, but I think it's important to acknowledge what we are also missing and what was possible. Yeah. Before, right? Yeah. 
So a little uh, continuing this workshop feeling uh, is the, my, myself and Wenfei just again moving as and participating to the uh, workshop. And Scott, if you can do the sound directly sharing from your computer, that might be better and keep the pointer out of that uh, screen, that will keep it better. Thank you. Continue, but take a few minutes to come to trees, really together. So often collaboration is an interdependence and it is also to help each other's thinking and sensitivity. So I would like to continue to honor that and how to do that even during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And are you teaching David now this semester or not, right? Uh, no, we, we postponed uh, normally uh... I direct a program called the Headlong Performance Institute and artists of all ages actually come, meaning all ages, meaning adult ages. So generally from mid twenties up to, um, you know, we have applicants who are my age um, and have children. Um, but, you know, often they're people in the mid to late twenties um, and we do a residency and training program and we, we canceled it for the fall. Um, and we have designed a hybrid program for the spring, um, which I could talk about later. Um, but I've been in conversation with the artists who are really hungry. You know, part of the reason why we decided to go ahead and do a kind of online slash, you know, socially distanced program um, was because uh, so many artists were being in touch with us and and just really hungry for the support for a, a community of inquiry around their work and their practice. So um, we're, we're going to start it. We're going to do it starting in late February. Right. And I, I did teach in your institute. You have invited me more than a few times. So I look forward, you know, to continue to collaborate with you, both as a duet project uh, format, but also beyond that we both are very eager to teach. And during the pandemic, I even become more aware how much we have to be willing to offer to the younger generation, because more we offer, the more they eat. <laughs> then by being eaten, I really feel I'm learning their mind. Yes. And the same is true. I think I was really glad I was in China nearly one month, even though I had to cut my visit short. Because to, you know, after this Nanjing, and that night I found out about, oh, this is serious. All of a sudden, everybody seems to know, even though until the day before, not many people knew about this. All of a sudden, people's uh, friends are texting each other. All those new photos are coming in, short videos are coming in. I'm talking about the night in Nanjing in January 20th. And then Wenfei and I flew to Kunming, which is her hometown, 
because as you may already and viewers may already have heard this um chinese new year is like that's the most important thing for family to get together so it's reminiscent of like here like thanksgiving covid number went up high after the thanksgiving right so people are really traveling uh to see their families and have a big meal um by the time we arrived to Kunming, there was already a COVID in Kunming. And so we went to National Park, like really out of the way, uh, to be safer and to be able to continue to work. However, even that place soon began to work. The entire National Park system had closed. So we kind of have to lock ourselves in, in a hotel room. And even though they deserved a like fancy New Year's Eve meal in a restaurant, we couldn't really do that. And I was very impressed by my friend Wen Fei's first decisions. Okay, now we are epidemic. We have to we have to behave differently. And I was kind of finding out the way they move so fast is one of the reasons, not only the government, but also the people, because they had SARS and they had they had other experiences of uh, quite a number of disasters in them in their own histories. So I would like to show you um, this is um, New Year's Eve that we would have had a very fancy dinner somewhere else, but we are stuck in a hotel room and seeing the national TV. Please go. So I remember that night, you know, the being family together, I am joining their family and they're addressing, the TV is addressing in a very heroic manner that we are, we are having this difficulty, we'll conquer this. Meanwhile, we are getting much more serious looking internet information. 
My friend from America is calling me to get out. My family from Japan is, is calling me to get out. Flight is being canceled, and that's what TV was showing. And I ended up, just two days later, uh, my son found a flight. And um, like at that point, it wasn't so much as I was fearful about me getting sick. I was so stressed out that my friends and my families are so worried about me. And when Faye was also stressed out, as she's having me as a guest. So we, we kind of found a flight and we quickly, within 10 minutes, that we had, to, we had to decide we can go because the airport is two and a half hours away. So this is a short documentary. Eko, can I, uh, just a quick, to make sure I'm, I'm reading the visual correctly. So yes. you're in this hotel room. Normally yes. you would be having a, yes. you know, a fancy yes. meal somewhere. But instead, you're like you you have some grocery items and you're eating in the and then on the TV in the hotel room is this big, you know, broadcast celebration going on, yes. and they are referring to yes. the epidemic that yes. has begun in Wuhan. Yes. And those are pictures from Wuhan yes. that's yes. happening. That's yes. and so as you're watching that, um, oh, yeah. uh, Wenhui is like realizing that a very serious ep epidemic is is happening in China. Yeah. And not so much on what TV is showing, it's more like meanwhile TV is showing this. Other people are also sending like online only information. That was much more serious. So this was very tender and scary as like the situation is changing every second. You know, this like kind of curve of the seriousness is not like same. It goes all the way, just like start to really accent, accelerate. And I get this sense of unknown fear. And, you know, as everybody is also calling me. So this is just a way that I, we are actually rushing to the airport. Please pray. Don't forget everything. <laughs> So I put in Chichang 私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私
just as big a shock. But this one, the pandemic really was so common everywhere. But in China, where I felt like I didn't really have uh, uh, access to the way that I'm used to having the information, yet so much was all of a sudden flooding to my uh, knowledge that I did not know exactly what to trust, what not to trust, and I had to make a decision. Yeah. You know, I, I can't look at that footage without thinking about the, you know, the incredible demonization of China and Chinese uh, people that, like, uh, you know, was going on in this country. And then you just see, like, you know, you hugging and, and having communion with ordinary people that's very heartfelt or very concerned. It's, it's, there's something very moving about seeing that footage just because of the incredible like China demonization that was going on in in this country. You know? yeah. and, and, and then there's also these layers as seeing you as a Japanese person having communion with Chinese people because of all of the, not just the US Chinese history, but the Chinese Japanese history. Yeah. And it's very moving. In fact, you just touched it. You know, I was actually in Nanjing, right? For the workshop. And uh, actually the reason I went to Nanjing was originally to go to a Nanjing Masakiya Museum, which is really a beyond disaster. That's a war crime, right? By Japanese military. And I had to learn that. I knew about it, but I really wanted to make sure that I had a way of learning how they memorize that, how they mourn that. And I wanted to be there. We also went to the Comfort Women Station. You know, all, Comfort Women is actually a term, it's pretty wrong, it's a brothel. And it's a sex slave. So those things are historically so important. And from a Japanese point of view, the government are not trying to attend it, and Chinese government are really trying to attend it. So really, again, who is going to memorize in what way, and you know what is accountability, and how we memorize it is a very important concern. And I think that the 2020, with this pandemic and with other violence, is also happening. Relationship to the pandemic is going to be a major, major things that we'll be thinking. A very long time. So you were in Italy, right? When was it you were in Italy? I mean, uh, it turns out um, in December, late December, all the way up until you know, uh, just just before the New Year, um, my family was in Italy. We were um, at a memorial for a friend, a kind of a memorial celebration that was taking place for. Um, uh, a friend whose husband had passed in the in the previous year, and after we left, the group of people who stayed got very sick. And in retrospect, they began to uh, uh, speculate that they had had COVID at that time. They'd gone to Rome and had been really um, the plans for the rest of the group were were shot because people were so sick. Right, and I think the so way it was exactly this time a year ago. Right, right, and the way that you know, I came back to Japan. I escaped to China. I came to Japan, and I was in Japan short time, and then I came back to America, and I was in this apartment in March, and I think the way we are looking at what was happening in Italy made us really realize, oh, this is coming. So what? What we were looking in the number of New York City, I remember, and again, I'm doing the same thing as I was in doing in China, like just looking at number, almost like every other 
hour, I'm looking at a number, and the number is really like going up. And I think knowing already like how hospitals really couldn't handle in Italy, and all that really gave us a lot of fear, which then became exactly the case, right? So I ended up, as I was rehearsing here in the Brooklyn Botanical Garden that I had a show at the end of March, and that did not get canceled for a long time. And so I was rehearsing, continued to rehearse. I was continued to be in a subway, and all of a sudden it was canceled. And I realized, oh, what's going on here? I mean, I knew, but the, the, the sense of the real danger right in here, in this right in apartment, right on the street, right on the subway, had become very prominent. So I left for Japan. And I was very disoriented at that point. Um, just like being here, as I said, you know, I said to my student, you know, for us, this pandemic makes us all together unknowing. I don't know any better than 21 years old. But we have different memories, not to say 21 years old do not have. We just have a, a longer decade and more so with older friends. So my older friends remember the Second World War. So for me, my remembrance most strongly associated by being here and locked in kind of was 9-11 and the AIDS, AIDS, AIDS pandemic. So that was very much uh, a reason of my running away to Japan. But I was very lucky having arrived in Japan, I already had uh, an invitation to create a virtual studio. So part of the reason I was so unstable was all my performances being canceled. And the performer work, <laughs> prepare the show knowing two months from now, I'm going to go that place and that's gone. Three months from now, I'm going to that place, that's gone. And within a very short period of the time, for everyone, everything got pretty much canceled out. So I was sitting here thinking, oh, it's the first time I have no plan to be in front of the people. So, you know, writers, painters, they're very used to working alone. But we work in communication, we work in collaboration, we work with staff, we work with tech crews. All of a sudden, that entire system we've been working had kind of crumbled down. I mean, we were supposed to be working together right now, yeah. actually. <laughs> like, uh, we were supposed to find out about a grant for this project, your, your duet project, and Headlong's Practicing to Die project, which we took a phrase from you, and Headlong had, was uh, about to get funded. We were at the final stages of getting funding, and we would have started working together in September, August, September, uh, and then we were going to work again in January, and uh, and that funding got pulled, and the you know the projects on hold, you know, yeah. and we're not we're not visiting each other or talking yeah. to each other except for now. So yeah. arriving in Japan, I was in quarantine, of course. And during the quarantine, I made a little, I began to edit the, my material that I already had. And this, this one that I want to show you briefly is the kind of example that being quarantine was very much affecting the mode mm -hmm. and the mood of the, yes, please go.
And then you can actually, Scott, you can play the next one right away. I just say one sentence. And then I also began to work, not only just editing, but also working over Zoom. So like me in Japan and my collaborators, whether they are in Manhattan or Brooklyn or elsewhere in the whole world. So this is just a short part of that, uh, 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 my uh, uh, experiment working on Zoom. So now you and I can do this over Zoom dancing. Next That's week. amazing. So you, got, you two are looking at each other. Yes, very much. And dancing through Zoom. Yes. I mean, I just, it's uh, very moving. And I'll just underscore um, the, you know, you look at the touching that was going on in the beginning, you know, in the workshop that you're doing. And then now we're you're, you're working on Zoom trying to make these visual connections through this digital netherland amazing amazing yeah. and so how i think we should you know because now time is running out very quickly so do you want to sh do tell me do you want to tell me what you've been kind of being up to during those times that i was creating those things uh i can't you uh you don't want to show the your seagulls I think I think Scott says we can go late if okay, we fine. if Let's we have. Okay, so. I, I I I just have to say I just I love you know thinking about how we adapt our artistic processes to this time. Echo, you've been like incredibly uh, prolific and working this whole time, even though your whole plan of how you were supposed to be working has been totally upended. And so I feel like what you've done over the last ten months is also a kind of a metaphor for how artistic practices shifted for so many of us, right? So from touching bodies together in a common space to like working across this, this uh, digital divide and trying to figure out how to be embodied and connected across that to th to this visual art kind of which which um you know sort of like <laughs> like no bodies at all <laughs> just, you know except these bird bodies which i read as a metaphor right. for 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 my body for our body so yeah i would love to see to yeah, see so this, this. The and, it, and as a choreographer it's just a yeah. different 
it's a yeah, different modality. I can joke about this is my choreographed piece, and of course I didn't choreograph birds, but by then I couldn't really like work with people. So nobody stops me if I'm shooting birds and literally manipulating the time, little time that birds fly, right? And how by manipulating time, I can see the details more closely. And then I realize, just as many people do, in a time of the difficulty, we also project our good and not so good humanity onto other beings, like little stories, right? We, we, we look at the birds and we still see the uh, our hardships, human hardships, and human will to survive into the birds, even the fierceness. So this is a short clip. I mean, this is much shorter than, you know, real piece. You know, real piece is quite a bit longer, but still, I was I was actually creating shorter pieces because everybody was becoming, by now, by then, was kind of becoming Zoom busy. So now I wasn't really thinking about, oh, let me join to the internet choreography, internet uh, dance uh, distribution. I wasn't really feeling that way. I really was thinking, let me make something now that I can make. And that would be a witnessing, that would be surviving, that would be just out of practice during this particular time. And that can be shown in a real place and the real time in a physical proximity to the real audience. Nice to see you again, Scott. I've been here, but just uh, uh, very happily queuing up these videos and, and I just want to make one quick in, uh, reminder that people are, are watching COVID calls, and today we're talking about choreography and art making in the time of pandemic with Eiko Otake and David Brick. And um, one little comment I want to make, and then David, I think we'd both love to hear what you know what you've been doing is is just how struck I am. And David, you said this a minute ago too, so I'm really just stealing your idea, but. You've captured already the life of the working artist, which is uh, a lot of travel. It, when things are going right, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of interaction with people. It's a lot of closeness. Um, and then to see you so quickly pivot to making this other work, um, I just think that placing those two, those two videos side by side, the first one, 
when you're working in China and the second one when you're doing the Zoom improvisation. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how to process that yet. I have to spend some time with that, but I think that is a really important, and there'll need to be a third one where you return to that studio in China and resume that work, yes. I suppose, if it's possible to, or even if you want to. I mean, we do make these assumptions that that's what we want to get back to. Yeah. But David, it's something that you and I talked with Ishmael a lot about over the summer, is there's a lot of things we maybe don't, shouldn't be in such a hurry to get back to. I think closeness and art making with people is certainly probably one of them, but I don't know if we can recapture that. So it's been inspirational just watching those videos and I'll I'll stop there and Echo, if you want to say anything and then yeah, David, let's sure. turn it to you. Yes, and um, David knows this really well and David has been very supportive. I've been working with Fukushima matter so as you know, the Fukushima and Scott, you know this very well. So, you know, there's a nuclear, um, um, I wouldn't call it accident, nuclear disaster, uh, starting 2011, March 11, and moving forward and still going on. So I've been there five times with a historian photographer, William Johnston. So I can't bring audience to Fukushima, but I was performing. So I was already starting, and even from even before, if I cannot perform for the audience in Fukushima, I can perform and I can bring Fukushima with me to the audience. And by the time people see either the photos or videos, it becomes another kind of a performance. So I believe in that. In another way, not just live performance is a performance. Whenever the artist creates something and audience watch it very carefully, with a lot of intention and their mind get moved, I think that becomes performance. And so that's what I've been doing. Yeah, that, I hadn't thought about that, how in a way like working on that. So uh, for people who don't know, uh, Eiko has traveled to Fukushima, the site of the nuclear disaster brought on by a tsunami in 2011 in Japan and the Place is evacuated. It's 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 radiation filled and unlivable. And uh, she's put her body in that landscape, and with uh, William Johnston taking pictures of her body in that landscape, um, she's created a series of photos and videos that is a performance brought into this realm of you know a digital realm, a visual realm. But it is still an embodied realm, embodied work, very, very deeply. And so I hadn't, I hadn't realized how you have been preparing for this disaster. <laughs> in the, you know, from the the, the seeds of that disaster. You know, I don't claim, I don't claim I've been prepared, but I think we know, three of us know, and almost everybody who is not young, young know, pandemic is in a way is not surprised. Nine eleven in a way was not surprised. Right. Fukushima uh, and uh, meltdown were not at all surprised. We, everybody kind of knew this was to happen. We did not, we did not, did not know this plan. Right. I, I, well, I know, I know. The, just, uh, just tag one thing onto that it, also, which is that those disasters are not over. No. Uh, not the, the nuclear disaster certainly, I mean, materially is not over. And in fact, this is during this pandemic, government and TEPCO are also uh, giving the, the uh, 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 dumping the contaminated water right. into the ocean. 
because it's much less noisy people become because we are so consumed by the pandemic and this this is extremely dangerous that's the, so you have that temporality moving along and i had a chance to speak with john feel who's a advocate for september 11 um for workers firefighters and workers he was a steel worker who was injured on the job and um we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of September 11. Exactly. The numbers of people who are dying of respiratory distress continues to grow. And 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 so there you have this this ongoing this continuity of the of the disaster. And so I think that also echo I'm curious to know from you and also from you David to what degree the continuation of those disasters manifests itself in work. Because, you know, I think we have this notion that writers and artists, choreographers, they're reacting to something, oh, there's a war, so they wrote a book about a war. But that's not how art works. That's not how our minds work. We react to everything that we've accumulated in this space and then everything else we can read and experience about it, third hand, second hand, third hand from others. I'm fascinated with that accumulation. Yeah, that's what I mean when uh, uh, I talked about other uh, uh, pandemic that we had experienced but to me is we knew humans fail we knew we are creating something we can't handle so just a nuclear plant as one good example when it fails it's extremely hard to handle it and in fact it is shockingly unprepared to handle it and it's extremely dangerous for the people trying to fix it too and we can't quite fix it it's an environmental disaster right and this those things were never without a warning i mean like trade center had the bombing several years prior to that and that was big enough but we managed to sort of cover up or at least not uncover it to get more warning than it actually deserves same thing with Fukushima. This is not at all the first nuclear accident. There were many, actually, and some were bigger than the other. And Fukushima and Chernobyl, were, of course, were bigger. But we pretend as if, oh, this was a big surprise. No, it's not a big surprise. And that part is so important to me. And to me, it's also like, you know, many things we create imitate human being because we are only human, right? And human beings always die. We always get sick. We always get injury. So everything we create, of course, will have an, uh, an injury. Of course, it will die eventually. When people buy a uh, um, uh, little, little, phone, little phone, nobody thinks this is going to last forever. Everybody knows this is going to fail at that one point. This is granted. But for some reason, we go as there to have such an um, amazingly complex and uh, 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 horribly dangerous things as nuclear plants and we create and somehow industries had always persuaded and actually buy out the people who had been fearful about it yeah. it's a lot of money going into the community to make it happen i you know i think uh that's i was trying to that sense of iteration and repetition um is what I was trying to get at by talking about how uh, as an artistic practice of like developing resilience and um, 
you know, new technologies of response to the situation of the world. Like, you know, it, it, it I just found it very, um, it just in terms of this thing that things repeat, that things go on, that there's a slow unfolding of disasters of all kinds that continue to happen. And this is, Scott, I'm stealing a way of framing things that you are so um, eloquent about. Um, I'm pretty sure I stole that from watching Echo and your work, David, so it's okay. <laughs> great, great. We all stole it from each But yeah, so, you know, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think I was reading, and I, Echo, I think you mentioned it, like they, uh, Japan was dumping a lot of the water the radiation-filled water from the plant recently, because the distraction of the current disaster creates an opportune moment <laughs> to do something where people's attention is elsewhere. So that's a kind of a dark repetition of disaster. But also the fact that you're like, as an artist, how do I speak? How do I bear witness to Fukushima for the world who can't go there, right? And so you begin to do use photography and um, and video in terms of, you know, and that's quite innovative, like to be like, I'm gonna take my body to this place that is off limits and dangerous, but I'm gonna document it. And then I'm gonna bring that documentation back as a performance. I, I find that very innovative. And and I do think in terms of Scott, your question about how things unfold over time, there's something in there. There's something in there like, you know, about resilience and, and innovation, not for innovation's sake, but it's like thoughtful response, you know? Like we, we develop skills in, in one context and that is learning for another context. Um, that is inevitable, I guess. We hope but so. We hope, we, yeah, we hope there's learning. Okay. What I worry about is that there's these artificial boundaries that are imposed that we call a disaster. And we, and we say, right. it's over. And but I think it's also why we absolutely must have works, some of them scientific, but I'm I really feel most of them need to be artistic, that intentionally confound our sense of disasters being able to be over and 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 packaged. And I this is a critique I share with many of my colleagues who are in the disaster research realm is we have long been seduced by the idea that disasters move in a cycle and therefore there's a closure point. And rather than thinking of them as a continuity that's nonlinear and um, these concepts to the extent that they're transferable across mathematics and science and history and art, that's the convergence that I find so um, important about both of your work and what you're discovering right now. I think we should, David. Should we um, give you a chance? To I can share. share yeah, I'll a testify bit. a little bit about my experience. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think it's a, you know, it's quite a contrast, Echo, with your experience. And 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 um, maybe I'll just frame it briefly. There's like two themes I think I would I would kind of frame about my experience as a human and an artist this past ten months. Um, the first theme I would talk about is the direct concern for the most vulnerable people in my life. So my parents who are in their 80s um, uh, and not being able to see them, you know, I, you know, I, 
intentionally live in the same city that they live in um, so I can be close to them during this time of their life. But we can't, we can't <laughs> uh, spend time together because it's so dangerous for them. And at the beginning of the, the pandemic, um, and I'll just say, like, my family's deaf, my parents are deaf. Um, you know, being physical is really, it's really important. Um, uh, although it, it does, it does give us an advantage um, that I'll, I'll, I'll speak to in a second. Um, something very special about sign language that is good for these times. Um, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, their assisted care facility um, was not responding well and, and was forcing them to eat in group, you know, in a group cafeteria and was like penalizing them, you know, by charging them extra if, if they refused to go to the dining room and stuff. So my brothers and I, um, you know, sort of desperate and kind of very, like, you know, very forcefully got them out of that facility for as long as we could afford to have them in another place. So we, we rented a place in Maryland that was in a horse farm and we're incredibly privileged that we were able to do that um, uh, for a few months. And then you know, we couldn't afford it anymore and they went back to the place. But by then that place had, um, you know, because of state mandates, you know, they stopped, they'd started delivering meals to people's rooms and insisting that people not gather. And so, you know, it, it, they're okay. But I, thinking about like, and thinking about, am I going to see them, you know, has been a big, big theme of the past 10 months. And we do gather now outdoors and we can stay far apart and use sign language to speak with each other. <laughs> and we don't, all of the kind of, I can't understand, you know, I think especially older people, but I'm hard of hearing myself. The masks just make it impossible to understand for many of us what anybody else is saying. So, but we're able to use sign language and that's nice. other anecdote that I'll share that's um, I'm not sure exactly what it means but it's about adaptation and um, silver linings um, so in the beginning you know when my daughter was um, you know her school was just canceled <laughs> for a while and um, uh, and so is uh, she was home and then my parents volunteered to give her sign language lessons over Zoom, right? So it's very hard for, you know, I've failed miserably at uh, teaching my, Safi is her name, teaching Safi sign language, you know, because, uh, you know, she's impatient with it and, you know, I'm impatient with it. So um, for the first time, she began to spend time with my parents one-on-one -on -one talking with them because it was almost like a kind of babysitting that was going on I'd set her up with zoom in the other room and for an hour and in the beginning I would check in and make sure and then you know after a few days they were like go away don't come back and they would spend two or three hours like talking to each other 
on the Zoom and, and Safi really getting close to them in a way she'd never had before. I'm, I was not mediating that relationship and they and she was learning sign language and uh, uh, you know, so that I, I just share that. Um, she has also been, she was eight, she turned nine during the pandemic and um, I would just say it's just like been, I've been terrified about her at this, this incredibly important age, like how everything is constrained on her physically. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a dancer, a choreographer. I believe in how important it is to relate to other bodies and to actually move. And there's just nothing in our flow that makes that happen. You know, like she's, she's on a computer literally all day, every day, because her school is remote. And her socialization, she's a very social child. It's very seems kind of perverse to me, you know, like the, you know, she's like channeled into these um, very narrow kinds of interactions with, through Zoom, through FaceTime, um, and uh, uh, with her friends and, um, and not developing new friends, you know, there's, there's, there's like a kind of an end of developing new friendships, right? And so all of this has been, um, I just say it's been a, a big part of my concern. Um, so I think um, there was one week this summer where her best friend, who's the child of uh, a dance artist who I've worked with a lot, um, and we're very, very close friends, our families are close friends, where we, we got tested and we decided to pod. We thought we were going to be able to pod longer, but we couldn't pod. It, it, it only lasted a week for complicated circumstances. But for this one week in July, we came together um, and it was a, a revelation. Like literally the first time we walked into a house and we're in the same space as another, as other people and we cooked together and we ate together um, was, um, you know, I just, I, I literally started crying, you know, when it just, I started to feel like, oh, wait, I can't get close to you. No, we can get close to each other and we can hug each other and we can just relax and play backgammon and cook meals and eat meals. And um, I feel privileged to have that experience. So I'm just going to share a poem about Safi in particular and her and her friend Iris. So my daughter's name is Saffron. Her friend's name is Iris. And they um, they disappeared for the week. They disappeared with each other into a room and they just you know like i found that distressing uh, you know like why aren't you running around outside you know we, we can all be together let's go outside let's, but they really like went further into a room together and just clung to each other for a week so this i'm gonna read a poem <laughs> this is my performance because i have not been dancing very much so this is my art um lebanon pennsylvania 90 degrees outside, but this air makes you forget. Steel explosions of pink fireworks kissing us with soft breath from the Persian silk tree. We float together as on a life raft, this wooden deck uncautious at last. Saffron and Iris are inside, hiding out. Months of quarantine leading to this reunion and doubling down reunion and doubling down in a fever of nine-year-old ecstasy or rebellion 
Deep inside the house, they shun us, clung together in the smallest room forever. Their hyper-quarantine, not ours. The cool smooch of woods doesn't do it, but the gloaming light finally moves them because fireflies, their slow green, their slow green blinks, running after June bugs through the darkening grass like I did in summers long ago, fevered summers not so long ago. So that's my, <laughs> my homage to being concerned. So I think family and friends have become ever more important. And like right now, as you were saying, I've been working like a maniac. And one of the reasons is there's a lot of regret on my end that, oh, you know, how, as we, as we talk, you know, there are so many things we knew and that happened and we were not prepared. So me, my kids are already grown, my parents are already dead. So it made me be able to really work as much as possible without having that. But still, I think the intimacy and the care within yeah. us become extremely uh, important. And I do not do it now, uh, but I did perform at the end of September and that was just two performances in the entire year. And then I'm realizing for many of the people, it really wasn't just to see me. It was really just to be together. Because it was a very safe outdoor social distance um, observed performances. So there was something about I reconfirmed how the performance in a contemporary society is not only for the art's sake. Art is there, of course, and I hope so. But it is also gives a place and time that we can experience together and see something together and talk about it and make that recognition together. So I do honor our community and I do honor audience's willingness to see, you know, performing artists' ways of working, no matter in a different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wanted to gloss one other thing because it feels So this experience that I've had, which is so much about the, the fragility of the grassroots um, arts community. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'll just start by saying that the number one funder of art in the United States is the day job of artists, <laughs> you know? So like the reason artists, Ha art happens in the United States is not because of foundation um, uh, and um, commissions and producers. It's because most artists have gig jobs and service economy jobs and temporary jobs, and they they support themselves to make their work. And um, and so I'm the director of a small nonprofit arts organization, Headlong Dance Theater, as a, as a service organization, as well as a, an organization that creates um, performance pieces. And we have programs that support artists. So the, the big work that I've been doing over the last 10 months is trying to make sure that Headlong stays in place. We, we have a building with two studios and artist apartments. We have another studio that's a textile design studio. And every week I was meeting with my board over in the late spring 
to be like, are we going to fold the company? <laughs> you know, do, do we, can we break Can we figure this out to keep going so that the, the, the spaces are intact for when people can convene again and rehearse again. And also uh, we're, we provide a, a fiscally sponsored services for um, uh, a whole bunch of amazing artists and, um, uh, and we do this training program. We have a large alumni community and we provide a lot of support. So just trying to keep the organization opening, open and, and being an administrator who's doing that work. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm proud that we paid everybody, all the artists who work in Headlong, we've continued to pay them um, during this time. And so far we've kept the organization under uh, open, <laughs> not under open. I'm putting a link in. So this link mm -hmm. is to uh, Headlong's recent fundraisers. It describes our programs. Um, and, you know, this is instead of dancing, I've been, I've been doing this work, <laughs> you know, to, to, to make sure there's something for the grass arts performance community to come back to. Um, uh, uh, so I just wanted to gloss that because I think that is the experience of so many artists right now. Is they're, they're moving out of their apartments, you know, and kind of moving in into like larger group living situations because they can't afford their rent because they don't have jobs. They're, you know, they're making 150 bucks every two weeks from, you know, some like online gig that they could hook up that's temporary. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I felt important to, to point at that. I, that fragility is is something that I've heard. Um, I talk with Kurt Brownoller, who's a great comedian. I talk with Rafe Offer, who's um, one of the innovators of a company that actually allows performance, uh, musical performances to, it started as a company where they bring artists into people's homes and now they've adapted that to have sort of more intimate Zoom performances. I'm just seeing so many artists across the spectrum first realizing how fragile the infrastructure is and then second adapting. I, I haven't heard anyone who said, well, I guess that's it for me. Uh, I mean, and there probably are, and we're probably not hearing about them right now. We won't know about that attrition for a while, but um, that that desire to adapt, I think that's some of the most important work that's happening right now because people absolutely rely on those, those things. Mm -hmm. And I know that the, and it, this is something it's important to acknowledge that the essential workers, the scientists making the vaccines, all of the infrastructure of that, which also has been a lot more fragile than I thought it mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. But that's important and we celebrate that. But if all of a sudden um, comedy clubs and dance theaters um, and dance festivals and movie uh, and um, film you know, series and things like that, if they're broken down a year or two, uh, it takes a while to build that infrastructure back up. And that's been something that's really concerning me. And again, heartens me about what you're both doing, but I also see the stress and strain and hear it in your voices and just in this conversation. But, you know, this is true, and I, I'm just as concerned because this is my field. At the same time, there may be a, a good learning experience because, you know, like, maybe some of the very big productions, as if, like, everything is fine in the world, 
may have a, a have to have a questioning. You know, there may be a way we can do that just as deep and moving outward without having that whole big mm. aspect, right? There may be something that we may be questioning right now that can linger. Even post-pandemic, which post-pandemic means it's like a, it's a pre-before another pandemic too, or another disaster. We never mm. end that cycle in a way, right? We know the earthquake is happening again. We know tsunami is happening again. We know we are making these humongous things that we cannot fix. So I think this whole recognition of it now might serve us in a way of even much more careful and much more uh, reflective in what we do. Not just like, oh, we'd like to do it, therefore we do it. I think there might be some different mm -hmm. system, different question mark, different sense of hesitation that is not stopping what we do. But, and we cannot change who we are, but we can perhaps change the way we do things. Hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, Eiko and I, you and I were talking about how through your teaching, you've really been able to um, kind of get a feel for how some younger people are processing and experiencing this time and how important that is. Yeah. And uh, to, to see that, to, to you know, I would say it's, for me, it's been an honor to have, to get to have one of the things I've had is contact with the artists who are interested in coming to this new version of HPI that's going to be online and um, hybrid for people who are in Philadelphia. Um, uh, there will be some socially distanced gathering that is able to happen too. But to talking to these artists and people are, are on fire to make work. I mean, this is definitely a moment that is for, that calls for art, you know, it calls for art to name what's going on, to work in the unknown, you know, this is the work that our artists are good at. It's like, um, it's juggling the unknown and finding direction in the unknown and um, naming what's happening and also imagining other possibilities. And the artists I've been, you know, fortunate to talk to, there's just an incredible fire about making during this time and excited. Yeah. And and I will just say, I mean, this is a whole nother kind of conversation, but in terms of like coming, creating a world that's better than the one that we left behind, some old things are crumbling that will never come back, you know? And I do feel like not being able to gather in a studio, for example, has really made it clear how much consensus and exclusion is built into the practice of like, we go into a studio and, you know, uh, and work together, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is, there are other ways to come together. There's other mm -hmm. ways to work. There's other ways to support, um, uh, you know, to convene a community of inquiry uh, and take advantage of real differences among the people in that community so that artists are making work not just for a consensus, but for specific and other communities, right, that are very different one from another. And I feel like there's beautiful things, like, you know, the kind of the ghosts of the 20th century are like, some of them are settling down and fading away, you know, in this yeah. moment, you know. I just want to underline one one 
one aspect of that that is um, deep pocketed institutions like universities. Um, I, I've had mixed feelings about that. I, on the one hand, I've expected universities to rise to the occasion a little bit more in terms of more outreach for community uh, and in terms of the classes. But universities have been, I think, very hesitant for all of the financial pressures that are on them to somehow use this moment and the distance learning. I, I feel like we could have had a distance learning revolution and I'm not seeing it. Now, let me say that, but let me also say what I've seen among many people I know who are faculty in the United States and other countries in terms of going well beyond the bounds of the kind of work that they would ordinarily be rewarded for is really is inspiring. And what I see in nursing schools and public health schools is absolutely blowing my mind right now. I mean, you know, so even, you know, David, I'm sort of I'm agreeing with you that we won't, maybe we, we want to really take a good hard look at what we want to go back to. And I think Echo was talking about that as well in terms of arts infrastructure, deep pocketed arts infrastructure. And in some ways, maybe it's not surprising that those structures, the, the heaviest lifting of them are, are, and the well-funded ones of them are pretty resilient. But there are still, people are learning in this time, I feel like. I, yeah. I do think there's going to be an innovation that comes out yes. in education and in arts of this moment. It's just too early to know what that's going to, what that's going to look like. Yeah. So as I said, we are creating now, but we are also creating for the future, but we are also remembering what was before. This is a longer time span, and all those things happening in front of us, really we can kind of see it, how we can be looking back or how we can use this occasion to even look back long before that. I am very interested in to use my body to look up the time that is in before my body. Mm. Because it is a continuous. Yeah. You know, it's not like all of a sudden the world began to crumble. No. I think there was a huge arc and the belief system of all oh, we will always progress. And I don't believe so. Mm. So in, in that's a real hard look. That doesn't mean we should all like, you know, cry out. But I think the hard look of not anymore believing, we just wait until the things will be better. Right. I, I just want to make sure people also know that uh, Echo's work, uh, A Body in Fukushima, will arrive as a book in the spring of, yes. of next year, 2021, to coincide with the 10th anniversary, yes. I'm sure. Um, and uh, we will be so eager to see that and to see the work that I'm sure you're making to go along with that, the sets of memorial practices that will, um, that will accompany that. And David, um, just as we're closing here, um, thank you for sharing that poem, by the way. I'm jealous that you can both dance and write poetry. I, <laughs> I can barely talk into a microphone, not to mention write a history lecture. So um, that's really impressive. But what else are you, can you share with us kind of maybe some other things to watch for from Headlong? Well, I'm really excited about this convening that's going to happen in February with um, artists, you know, this, this residency and training program that's going to happen in this new, I think, radically inclusive format. Like that, that's really been our kind of organizing mm -hmm. idea now that we don't, we, you know, you know, so I'm I'm looking forward to that, and there'll be work that is coming out of that artists, and we'll find forums to share that with the public. Um, Headlong's main work 
right now um, is uh, is actually inspired by a, something that Echo said to me. Um, it's, we call the project Practicing to Die, and that was named this before the pandemic um, happened, because um, Echo was talking about this phase of her working. And she said, I realized I'm practicing to die, you know, like, you know, with my I'm working with younger people and students and older people. I'm, I'm even working with ghosts of people who have died. She's like, I am myself practicing to die. And I was so moved by that because of everything it applies about ongoingness and iteration and cycles of, of life and death. Um, and so Headlong will be working on that. There's a, we have a score that is a, uh, an online convening score that's half contemplative and half making, and it's for citizens. It's not for specialized artists at all. Um, so we'll we'll be uh, opening that back up for participation sometime soon. Um, yeah, and you know people can go to Headlong and sign up for our mailing list. We're we're a little old fashioned still. We do a lot with um, mm -hmm. emails. You know, I like to write. So I do share information kind of densely on emails, but you can also like, you know, get on Headlong's Instagram and, and Facebook. You can, we'll, we'll post information there too. Thank you for asking. Well, I just want to remind folks, you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. It's been a wonderful week uh, in COVID calls. It's been a horrifying week uh, in terms of the illness and death that's happening but also the the vaccine so has come out this week so really a lot of up and down this week they will close out the COVID calls tomorrow um for this week with a discussion of COVID 19 and fair housing we'll be talking to mary flannery mel jones and orla mccaffrey and i just want to thank david brick for coming back uh and uh, i want to thank echo otake uh you're both inspirations you shared new work with us today just tremendous. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.